This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Thanks for joining me for the Parenting ADHD podcast. I'm excited today to be talking to Brian R. King, the compassionate dad. Growing up with ADHD and dyslexia and later in life being diagnosed with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and multiple sclerosis is hard enough. Add to it raising three sons with Asperger's and ADHD, and you'll find someone with world-class patience and resourcefulness. That someone is Brian R. King. Thanks for joining me today, Brian. I'm really excited to talk about compassionate parenting and how that's going to help our parents raising kids with ADHD and autism. Thank you for having me, Penny. I know we're going to have a great conversation. I know that we are. I think we um, have a lot of the same approaches to parenting, and we're going to really have a great conversation here. If you would, if you want to just start by kind of letting the audience know what your definition of compassionate parenting is, what what is compassionate parenting? Absolutely. Compassion itself is rooted in the realization that we're not so different, you know, us and our child, that we're in this together, we're both learning, and we both don't know what we don't know. Right. So a lot of our approach comes from this place of winging it. You know, you're, you're ignorant, and you're doing your best. Exactly. And mm-hmm. often when we, parents that come from that place of frustration and patience, it's almost as though they're forgetting they're dealing with a child and are thinking that they're dealing with a little adult that should know better. Mm-hmm. And that distinction causes a lot of problems. It's important to remember that you and your child are both trying to figure it out and you best join hands and go on that journey together. I love that. I love that you're pointing out that it's not just the parents who are trying to figure it out. You know, when we get diagnoses of ADHD or autism, we don't get a lot of information about where to go from there. What's the best thing that we can do to help our child? And so looking at it from the perspective that they're kind of on that same journey at the same time is really powerful for parents, I think. Absolutely. And it also lets them off the hook. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, And you had mentioned the importance of being a student of your child. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I know that um, I talk a lot about figuring out what your child's truth is, what's really true for them and letting that be your parenting compass. And I think that um, being a student of your child is somewhat the same in the same vein there. Can you kind of talk a lot about what that means for you and what that means for our parents and compassionate parenting? Absolutely. Any of the seminars you go to, any of the books that you read are targeting the average you know, what tends to be true for the majority of the population. Mm -hmm. None of the books are written to address your child and your child's unique profile of strengths and challenges and how to best support them. So regardless of how many aha moments you have through the latest book, you still need to custom fit it for your child's experience. 
Exactly. And that begins by being able to be present with your child in the moment mm-hmm. and asking the question, what are you trying to learn? What are you trying to make happen? Because mm-hmm. any child that engages the world is trying for a result. And maybe that result is just feedback. Let's see what will happen when I drop mommy's glass on the floor. You know, let us see. Let's see what happens when I slam my brother's fingers in the door. And it can be stuff that you think is outrageous and unsafe and the child should know better. But your child is looking for results. Right. And depending on how your child's personality is, they may not want to go outside and play. They may want to draw. So trying to push them outside because the book says you're supposed to might not be what your child needs right then and there. So being a student of your child is wanting them to teach you what they need, what they're trying to find, what it is they want to make happen, so you can support them, as long as it's not dangerous. Right. Being, I think, mindful, open to what they're trying to communicate to you. Um, Back in, I think, episode three, I talked to Sarah Wayland, who's an RDI consultant, and she is really big on behavior as communication. Oh, yes. Which is something from Ross Green of The Explosive Child. And I think that, you know, that's kind of the same thing as what you're saying is um, when there's behavior, negative behavior, what is your child trying to tell you? In the instance that you gave, your child's trying to tell you that they don't want to be outside right now. They would much rather be inside and drawing. Yeah, and why is that? What need is being met? You know, Why does right. this activity fill the child up? Or why does this serve to prevent them from being exposed to something they perceive as negative? Mm-hmm. Either way, there's something there for you to learn from your child. Right, something about them. Yeah, asking why... I think is so, so crucial. And as parents, we don't do it. You know, we're taught to parent kind of with the heavy hammer and you do what I say when I say it. And that's what I expect because I'm your mom or I'm your dad. And instead, especially with kids with developmental um, disorders, we really, really have to dig for the why, because you're going to be the most successful parent in that instance, when you're looking for the reasons behind behavior, but your child is also going to be able to be the best that they can be in those moments too. And that's what we're really after. Absolutely. And one thing I want to add here is you're also modeling the importance of being curious. Mm -hmm. And when you Mm -hmm. teach your child to be curious about their own whys, about their own thought processes, you teach them to introspect early on. Right. And how to understand their own mind, because they're going to have to be able to self-advocate in school, in life and say, well, this is what works best for me. And this is how I best problem solve. And I don't I don't know about you, but I don't know too many kids that go into school prepared like that because the parents tend to rescue a lot and learn how Mm -hmm. to do the thinking for their child and send them to school with learned helplessness. Yep. I was very guilty of that early on. I was a huge helicopter mom um, out of protection. You know, a lot of moms, especially, we have that innate desire to protect our kids. And what I learned over time was it was actually more detrimental to them because they weren't learning how to do things for themselves, how to rescue themselves, how to be resilient. Um, You know, that's so, so important. And I think 
another key thing about that is that you're also teaching self-awareness and self-regulation, which is usually delayed in kids with ADHD and autism. So you're also teaching lagging skills by doing that as well. Yeah, and if kids are walking around confused, which we know kids are anyway, because the world is moving pretty fast these days, Mm -hmm. but when you have difficulty with processing, things are out of sync, Mm -hmm. things are even more confusing. So it's difficult for a child to then take all that in and try and make any sense of it. Right. So without you facilitating the self-awareness that they need, they may not learn it. They may just become this reactive ball of anxiety that lashes out in class, that runs out of the room, and doesn't know any better. And in your defense, Penny, as a parent starting out with a kiddo that had some challenges, in the absence of knowing what to do to support your child, you just want to protect your child. Right. So it's you put up a easier, safety net. Yeah, it's easier to go in and rescue until you know better. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's very true. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of what I teach parents is to facilitate and scaffold. So instead of, say, picking up the mittens off of the floor after your child came home from school and putting them away where they live yourself, you're asking your child, hey, where do your mittens live? Where do they go? Where should they be? And you're having them do it. So you're helping them with that thought process of planning and sequencing and cleaning up after themselves, right? But you're also um, teaching skills in that moment and you're not doing it for them. You're teaching independence already very early. And I think that's really important. You know, a lot of parents don't think that independence is important in the younger ages, but it really is. You know, you build that foundation, they're going to be a lot more successful at independence when they're a teenager. One thing that's important that you just pointed out with the example of the gloves, is a lot of parents that have intact executive functions, you know, they have the abilities to be organized mm-hmm. like that, they don't realize putting your gloves away is a multi-step process. Yes. And if you have a yes. glitchy brain, you may see a kid just come in and drop their gloves on the floor and ask, Mom, my kid's so lazy, you know, how hard is it? Well, how hard is mm-hmm. it? That's a good question. Do you think possibly it's harder than you realize? Otherwise, your child may have greater ease with that. So when you go back and examine it like you did, you know, ask the question, where do your gloves live? And ask them each step of the process, you'll see where they get stuck. Mm -hmm. And then you'll know where the skill needs to be added. And sometimes it's just purely a lack of awareness. You know, my son just doesn't see things all over the place. You know, if I say pick up your Legos, he'll get a few, but he really just doesn't notice that finite detail in his environment. So, you know, that's another thing that we're kind of trying to teach. You know something? My wife has the same problem with me. (laughs) And I'm getting better at it because there are, at any given time, because of my working memory is very, very poor, meaning the ability of information that I can hold in my mind at one time is limited to two or three things. So if I had to try and remember what it is I'm going to the next room for, I'm focused on that. I'm not going to scan it mm-hmm. to see if there's stuff to pick up. Right. And I try and explain this to her, and she doesn't buy it because she has Olympic class executive functions. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, make I, do myself, too. I make myself a list of 
the things I need to attend to in other rooms. So when I have a break, I go and scan it then, and that's when I spot all right. the stuff. Right, and it's important, I think, too, to point out to parents that it has to be something that works for your child. You know, my way doesn't necessarily work for my son. I have to teach him to pick up after himself, you know, do these sort of things, but I have to help him find a way that works for him to do it. And it is very likely not what would work for me. You know, I'm the frontal lobe of my whole household. Everybody in my house is kind of messy and scattered. And, you know, they're two of the three of them are very creative and, um, you know, they're just different and different is fine. Um, and we figure out how to go along and, and get things done. But really, it's a lot of scaffolding, for sure, a lot of facilitation. And it does take more time. Would it be easier for me to grab those mittens off the floor and throw them in the basket? Absolutely. It would save me 10 or 15 minutes, probably. Because my son, of course, is going to grumble and groan about having to stop what he's doing and come attend to what I want him to do in the first place. So it is a long process, but it's imp- it's key. You can't skip it. You just can't take the easy way out when you're parenting kids with ADHD and autism. And, you know, I had to learn that myself. And a lot of parents have to kind of come to that point. But the earlier you learn it, the better, because you're teaching that learned helplessness at the beginning. And undoing that is hard. And keep in mind that for kids, even when it becomes habit, it still takes a degree of mental effort because doing those yes. sequential things are not things your brain does easily ever. Mm-hmm. You just maybe get used to certain patterns, certain habits. But even today at 47, a lot of what I do to make my life work is done very deliberately. Right. And I don't get quite as tired as I used to, but it does wear on me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, setting up those those um, habits or the systems is really important. That's what keeps you on track. That's what keeps our kids on track. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about compassionate parenting as it relates to empathy and validating our kids' emotions. Um, I talk a good bit about that. I think that that is a super powerful Um, tool in our parenting toolbox when our kids are upset to validate their emotions, even if they're, um, you know, inappropriate in the moment, it's still how they're feeling at that time. And so, you know, that and just showing empathy, I have found to reduce the length and severity of meltdowns many times, um, preventing them, you know, it's a really, really powerful tool. And I think that that fits really nicely with the topic of compassionate parenting as well. Oh, you're right on. And when it comes to empathy and accepting the raw, real emotions in the moment, the parent has to first be able to do that for themselves. Mm -hmm. There are so many parents that beat themselves up. You know, I shouldn't be such a wuss. I should be tougher or whatever internal dialogue they have going on that doesn't give them permission. And think about what we grow up with. You know, I'll give you something to cry about, quit overreacting, be a man, all of that baloney Mm -hmm. that we sometimes hear that tells us our emotions don't matter or we can't trust our emotions. So one belief I want to encourage parents to take on is that 
there are no right or wrong emotions. There are only honest ones. Yeah. In that moment, this is what your child is feeling, and there's a good reason for it. So what you need to do is acknowledge that first. Hey, I can see that was really frightening for you, or I can see you're really upset about that. When Mm -hmm. I'm going to sit here with you, and when you feel calmer and ready to talk about it, I'd like to understand what's happening for you right now. Yep. Yeah. And then be the student of your child. Let them explain their experience to you. And then mm-hmm. don't tell them, well, this is how you should feel about it. Because, again, you're invalidating the, the feelings. You want to help them explore whether they would like to be able to feel differently about this next time. And if they would, then you can explore new strategies or approaches for doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I use that a lot when um, we have anger and frustration issues. And, you know, I I always try to equate some other situation or, um, you know, I might say to him, well, you know, most of us would get really frustrated or angry if we felt like our friends were teasing us or, you know, whatever the situation might be. Um, to really add that even extra step of validation that it's okay to feel that way. And you're not the only person that would feel that way in that situation, because I think our kids often feel like they're the only one, you know, they're the only one with their struggles. And so, um, kind of validating in that respect too, I think is just another added element of giving them some relief and helping them process emotions. Oh yeah. And add the step of relating it to your own experience because Mm -hmm. you're the one they're looking to connect with in that moment. You're the one they want to get it. So when you can say, Oh, this reminds me so much of when I went through that and I understand what it's like. It's not, I know how you feel. Mm -hmm. I understand what it's like to feel hurt, to feel like, you know, I don't matter or feeling left out so that you remind them we're in this together. You know, we, we will get through this together. You're not alone. Yeah. And I think you touched on something really important by not saying, I know how you feel because I think our kids are acutely aware. um, If their parents don't have ADHD or autism, they're, they're very aware that we really don't know how they feel. We really don't completely understand their experience. And that's painful for them in a lot of cases. So I think, you know, it's really important to be very mindful in those situations to not just because I think that's human nature for us to say, oh, I know how you feel. It just kind of slips off the tongue. Yeah. I think you have to be really careful to not say that. Um, because I think our kids are really aware that we don't exactly know how they feel. And then, you know, you're losing that real power behind the empathy in that situation. Absolutely right. Our kids know when they're not understood because they're trying so hard to communicate and people are not responding to them in the way that they need to be responded to. And they feel like they're an alien. Mm-hmm. No, so you, yeah. can't, you can't convince them that you get it when there's so much evidence that you don't. Exactly. So you do your best to be patient with yourself and with your child as you're trying to figure it out alongside them. Yeah. Yeah. I love the idea, too, of teaching parents to be compassionate to themselves. You know, this special parenthood is really hard. There's no denying it. There's no getting around it. 
it's hard. It's very difficult. And so we have to be really kind to ourselves. You know, we have to let ourselves off the hook. We're going to make mistakes in parenting. We're going to lose our patience. You know, every parent does that. And I think sometimes we're harder on ourselves as parents of kids with special needs. We're, we're less compassionate with ourselves. Um, because I think we feel like there's more on the line. Um, I don't know, but yeah, I really like the idea of being compassionate to ourselves as parents as well. Yeah, I agree. I don't think, or I'm guessing here, that parents of typical kids, the ones that are hitting the home runs and getting good grades in school and are always running Mm -hmm. out with their friends and very independent, I don't get the sense that those parents spend a lot of time worrying about what's going to happen with their kid after they're gone. Yeah. You know, they're going to say, ah, my little Johnny, you know, he's going to do great. I still worry about my kids, you know, with with everything that I've taught them, I still wonder, Yeah, have I prepared them enough? And that is something that if it's not unique to special needs parents, it's definitely more of a norm than not so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is tough. I mean, I, my son now is about to start high school in a few weeks. And so now that narrative has really been playing in my mind a lot. Have I prepared him? Is he going to be ready to do this on his own? Is he, you know, the other day he really wanted um, a VR or virtual reality headset, but he didn't have any money. And, you know, it was a meltdown. He just, he was so stuck on the idea of, of experiencing that. He wants to know what everything's like, that he really had a very difficult time for several hours. And, you know, after that played out, he, he realized that he could gather up some games he didn't play anymore and take them to GameStop and get some uh, money that way and get what he wanted. And, he, you know, he did problem solve in the end, which was awesome, which would not have happened a couple of years ago. So definitely progress. But after all that, I thought, OK, when he's on his own and he has to pay rent and buy food. Is he going to pay rent and buy food or is he going to go get that thing that he really wants to know what it's like? You know, mm-hmm. is he going to be OK? And and that, you know, that was the, the thing running through my mind all week now is, um, you know, now what do I do? How do I prepare him in that instance? And am I doing enough? You know, again, that same. And I think that's, you know, something that's natural for us. I don't think that compassionate parenting necessarily takes that away it's just being kinder to ourselves about it. And it's accepting that essential ignorance that we both have. Because compassion can be mistaken by some people as being, you know, too permissive or too mm-hmm. kind or too soft. No, you can be very firm and be compassionate. Absolutely. But you're not coming from the place of, hey, kid, are you dumb? You know, use your head. You're coming from that, I understand what you're trying to do here. I understand that you don't know any better, Mm -hmm. but what you did caused a problem for many people, and you need to understand the consequences of that. I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the situation and the problems it causes. Yep. So you're not taking away the consequences, not one bit. No. But you're honoring the person that is trying to discover, that is trying to figure it out. And you're also honoring the fact that you're not so different. Mm-hmm. So you don't come off as a know-it-all. You know, you just right. you just come off as a, I know slightly better because I've been down this road and I want to share it with you, but I understand that you didn't do it because you were mean or cruel or a bad kid. You did it because you didn't know any better. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And honoring their truth. Yeah. It all comes back around to that too. So what else can we talk about under the umbrella of compassionate parenting for parents of kids with ADHD and autism? What else do parents in our audience need to know? They need to know that it really begins with them. Mm -hmm. Because any baggage you're bringing into the parent-child relationship is going to come through in your parenting. No matter how many books you read or how well-intended you are, the beliefs that you hold are going to be the ones that you act on. Yeah. So you've got to do some work at unlearning all of the self-criticism, all the stuff that you do that's hard on yourself. Because until you're softer and more patient with yourself, you can't possibly do it for your child. Yeah, and I think, too, you know, you reminded me that we really have to throw out our parenting book, what we learned growing up from our parenting, from from our own parents, whether it was positive or negative, it really doesn't matter. You really have to just push all of that aside and start writing your own parenting narrative because it's completely different. And even if um, you had ADHD yourself and you're looking at the way that your parents raised you and, and they did a pretty good job and you're pretty successful as an adult with ADHD, you're still very different than your child. Absolutely. You're still two totally different people. ADHD is going to affect you in different ways. Um, you know, I moderate the forum over on Attitude Magazine, and a lot of times um, parents will be starting a thread, asking a question, venting, whatever it might be, and they're saying, you know, I have ADHD too, and I just buckled down and I got through school just fine. And I have to remind them, you know, that's you. And ADHD affects you much differently than your child. Obviously, your child can't do that because they're not. Because kids do well if they can. Again, another Ross Greenism. Kids do well if they can. If they're not doing well, why? And then your compassion and your questioning comes in. And, you know, being a student of your child comes in. Um, but you have to completely disengage from everything you learned about parenting and and rewrite that book for yourself for your own child amen to that yep and and and, you know and then it's like well what do we replace it with because there isn't a lot of information out there there wasn't for me starting out you know that's why I ended up writing and uh, books and courses and now mentoring and coaching because it's just not there. There is no system out there. You know, you can buy the what to expect books and get probably all the way through adulthood at this point with those, but we don't have the same for, for special needs. So it's really important. And I think, you know, to your point early on, if we did have that, it still wouldn't be exactly correct for our kids because they're also individual. Well, and I want to clarify something I said earlier about the, the seminars and the books being general they do have their value, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But it's important for parents to not try and make their kid fit the book. Exactly. The book says you're supposed to do this. Mm-hmm. That information can tell you where to look, you know, tell you what is probably related to the challenge versus what's just being a kid. Mm-hmm. But then there's the part you need to explore and ask yourself, is this true for my child or is there more to the story? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's a book full of 
strategies and tools. And you have to decipher which ones work for you and your child and which ones don't. And they're not all. I mean, even in a neurotypical parenting book, everything is not going to be applicable to every family. So, yeah, yeah, that's a really important key piece to point out to parents is, yes, the books have value. Obviously, they have value because we all go to them. We're all searching online. We're reading books. You know, we're trying to find the information somewhere because... We're not getting it from our clinicians when we're getting diagnoses. So they definitely have value. But I I love that you're pointing out that it isn't all going to work. And don't try to make your square peg fit into that round hole, right? You can't squeeze your kid in there. You just have to figure out what works. And as much as I've learned, I'm still a student. I'm still going to the seminars. I'm still listening to the podcasts. And there's always something to learn because as our world changes – with no sight of slowing down, the world that we're putting our kids into changes. Yeah. And there are people that are figuring it out faster than we are, and I want to learn from those folks. Yeah. And our kids are constantly changing, too. Yeah. You know, my son was diagnosed at age six with ADHD, and then autism was added at age 12. He's now almost 15. And I can think back over the eight and a half years and it's constantly changing, um, you know, as he learns new skills, he's, you know, his needs are different as he um, hit puberty, things really change, you know, now he's a teenager, there's different social aspects that are an issue. It, it's always a moving target. And, and that comes back to being a student of your child, being very aware of what's going on with them and discovering that. Um, that I think is a consistent process. It's not just something you're going to do for six months or a year and then you've got it. It's it's a lifelong or a parenthood-long journey. Yeah, there's the saying that it takes a village to raise a child is never truer than it is with our kids. Mm-hmm. A big portion of their life needs to be bet, spent building that support system around them because when you do leave this world, and you will, there's got to be people they can go to. Yeah. People that they've been self-advocating to their entire lives or maybe even new people they've met that they are comfortable enough about themselves to reach out and say, hey, you know what? I'm not so good at this. Could you help me out? Yeah. And knowing how to self-advocate and bring people to them is going to be an essential life skill. And if they can do that and you're confident in their ability of doing that, then you can rest assured that they'll probably be okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's a big one. And that's something, too, that, um, you know, early on in elementary school, we're advocating a lot for our kids. They don't necessarily know what they need yet. You know, they're still discovering. And um, it's really important as they become teenagers that we are facilitating and, and scaffolding that process for them because once they hit 18, they have to advocate for themselves. You know, if they go to college, you cannot call up the college and say, my kid needs these accommodations. They are going to politely get you off the phone and hang up because they can't talk to you directly about that at that point. So it's a really, really important piece of the puzzle for our kids that we need to start as early as we can. Um, And I think, you know, it's not just about building the specific team, as you said, it's also about 
making sure that they know how to find people to support them or to help them in different situations. Because like us as their parents, everybody in their life when they're a child isn't necessarily going to be around later when we're not. So that's a a big piece of it as well. I've worked with a lot of college kids over the years. And one thing that's consistent is kiddos sent away to college to have that, you know, first fray into adulthood who are used to mom or dad picking up the phone and asking for help on their behalf. They mm-hmm. don't ask for help when they don't understand an assignment. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't get extra time on their IEP. Nobody's going to wake them up for school. And a lot of these kids implode because suddenly they're having to do what's been done for them for 18 years. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter is going off to college in um, nine days, I believe it is. We are moving her in. And when we went to orientation, we heard that over and over. Stop doing things for your kids right now. You are not going to call them and wake them up every day. Do not do it. You know, they they really tried to prepare. And, and it's unfortunate that that isn't like a message you get when your kids enter high school as a freshman or something and you have more time to really focus on it. But that was a huge message during orientation at college that we heard over and over and over again was stop doing it for them. They have to learn to do it for themselves. And that's that's big. Yeah. My youngest has been doing his own laundry since he was five. Wow. And he has Asperger's and ADHD and he can be very difficult to stay focused. Mm-hmm. Very a lot of difficulty remembering. But darn it, he's on the job. Because these are things, That's awesome. because it takes him longer to figure things out, he needs to start sooner. Yeah. Yeah, that's true, too. You know, it takes a long time to build skills and build habits. Um, laundry is definitely one where I have fallen as a parent <laughs> because I'm so particular. Um, well, we all have our own stuff to work on, don't we? I know, exactly. And that's what I tell parents all the time. You know, they say, oh, I'm such a mess. I'm like, we are all a mess, just in different ways. We all have strengths and weaknesses. They're just different for each person. And I think, you know, that's a really freeing way to look at parenting, to know that everybody's struggling. You just may not know it. Guess what? I was human today. Mm Mm-hmm. Imagine that. It works. Um anything else we're kind of coming toward the end of our time here and i just want to be sure that you've been able to convey every message that you want to during the podcast well in one thing i want to add is in addition to making sure that your child has that support community please make sure you get your own you know, mm-hmm. we, we live in the era of social media so if you're surrounded by family members that don't get it you will find groups that are on Facebook. I have my own group, Compassionate Parents. I don't know how many others are out there. I know, Penny, you have a wonderful page on Facebook. So Mm -hmm. the resources are out there. Go and find them and rally with the people that get it, that are kind and patient, like you aspire to be as a parent. Because you'd be surprised how those folks can be the very ones to help you get through it when times are tough. Absolutely. You have to find the people who have walked it a little bit ahead of you. And those experiences from others are so powerful. I, I think all the time about where I would be if we didn't have the internet at this point. It would be heartbreaking. I mean, I have gotten so much support and information and compassion from other parents 
in a similar parenting journey. And so I can, you know, that is so, so important. We even, um, I think 2018 is going to be our seventh happy mama retreat and it's a weekend of respite just for parents of kids with neurodevelopmental and neurobehavioral disorders, because we need that community of support. And it is super, super important. You can't be um, on your A game as a parent if you're struggling yourself. It's wonderful that you're doing that for the moms. Yeah. And I get so much out of it myself, of course, too. It's really a, a wonderful thing. I wish we could do it three or four times a year, but, um, it's really awesome. It has been a real blessing. And I think, you know, even if you can't get together with people face to face, so many parents say, I can't find a support group or I can't, um, find another parent to talk to online is just as valuable and you'll meet far more people that way and get far more support. So, you know, I think a lot of people kind of dismiss that it's online or over the internet or on social media, but you know, they're really powerful tools as well. They're not just for goofing off. You know, I talk all the time about how Facebook kind of saved me. You know, I don't use it just to bide my time or when I'm bored or, you know, share what I'm eating, I use it to um, get support in parenting and to share messages that I think will help other parents. So all those things are very valuable. My Facebook profile is like a virtual classroom. I always make sure that I'm providing something educational every single day so that the parents that have been kind enough to connect with me have that one thing to keep them moving forward every day. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Very awesome. Well, I think that we have talked a great deal. We've given a lot of really um, powerful and helpful advice for the parents that are listening to this episode of the podcast. I do want to make sure that they connect with you um, at CompassionateParents.com. And in the show notes that you'll find at ParentingADHDandAutism.com, you'll be able to get a link to Brian's website as well as his social media account and we'll get everything up there. He also has a free resource for you and you will find that link and be able to download that um, in the show notes on my website as well. I really, really appreciate you being on this podcast episode today, Brian. I'm really glad that you found me online and that we've connected. Um, You have a lot of very valuable insights for parents of kids with ADHD and autism, and I look forward to learning more from you. It's been a privilege, Penny. Thank you as well. Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.